everybody, and welcome back to the Deep Astronomy Show. I'm Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and I want to take a moment at the top of this podcast first before I do anything else and just say thank you guys for listening. I know that if you're subscribing to the Deep Astronomy podcast RSS feed, whether it's on Spotify or Anchor or iTunes, whatever it is, I know you're probably going, what is he doing with this podcast? It is all over the place. I mean, I know, I get it. I have, in addition to doing this show, which I am increasingly loving to do more and more, I'm also posting the audio for the Hangouts on this on this feed and and all kinds of random stuff. So thank you guys for hanging in there, for listening. But I have to tell you, Whatever it is I'm putting out there, you guys actually listen to. So thank you for that. And I'm very, I'm very grateful. This is becoming a platform I'm more and more wanting to provide content for because it's much more under my control. I can say and do whatever I want without fear of, of content ID rejections from copyrights, whatever it is. And so uh, this has been a lot of fun. So I want to I'm probably going to do a lot more of this if for no other reason they're just easier to produce. I enjoy talking. So I just wanted to thank you for listening. And I know that we're with you. Um, as you're listening to this, you're probably doing something else. You're probably driving a car or you're, you're on your way to work or you're cooking dinner, whatever it happens to be. It's nice to know that you're listening to me and we're together. I do sometimes wish there was more feedback that we could get some back and forth going, but you know, you take what you can get. And this is to me uh, good enough to know that I'm connecting with you guys on some way. So today what I'm going to do is break up this this podcast into a couple of segments. I want to tell you a little, I want to include this, a segment on the Event Horizon Telescope that I recorded uh, a while back that was asking the question, uh, was the Event Horizon Telescope black hole image a waste of time? And I'd also like to post an interview I did with Will Tyrion. He is a uh, uranographer, which is uh, someone who makes star maps. And if you are an amateur astronomer as old as I am, then you're very familiar with his sky atlases throughout the uh, years. You've probably used them. Anyway, I spoke with him in early March, I guess. So I'll be including that interview as well. going to take a quick break here. And if there is any sponsored content that gets played here, then it will happen next. Otherwise, it'll just go right into the next segment. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Deep Astronomy vlog post. My name is Tony Darnell from Deep Astronomy dot space gotta do the dot <laughs> and today i'm responding to this request from one of deep astronomy's space fans this is from Taya Bransma from holland and he writes tony where are you since the first image of the black hole was made public i am looking forward to your personal response are you elated disappointed i hope to hear from you Taya, a fan from holland well <laughs> okay first Taya, let me just say thank you for using the Deep Astronomy website to contact me. I read all the correspondence from there and I only read the minimum amount of comments I have to do on YouTube because let's face it, YouTube comments have been a pain in my existence ever since I've been posting videos. So using my website makes me very happy and th so thank you very much. Now personally, I think that the image of the black hole was a little bit anticlimactic. Uh, anticlimactic? Anticlimactic. Anticlimactic means I'm against climate. No, uh, anticlimactic. <laughs> uh, because of all the buildup and the hype and and 
whenever there's this big story like this that spreads all over the internet, I tend to take a low profile because there's very little I, I feel like I can add to the discussion because once the big guys jump in, basically, I, you know, they're not going to, all I can do is just repeat what others have said. And followers of this channel know that, however, that this is nothing new. The Event Horizon Telescope, I've been, we've been talking about this for a long time. I've done several SFNs over at least the past year on it. And we had a hangout way back in December. I put the link up here uh, with Jeff Bauer, the Chief Scientist for Hawaii Operations for the Event Horizon Telescope, where we learned all about it way late last year. So this is nothing new to this channel. So, I mean, you space fans knew about this way before the announcement last week. So I feel like I've already said a lot about the Event Horizon Telescope and the black hole image itself. Still, even though I feel like what needs to be said has been said, I still get a lot of inquiries about my what my personal opinion is on it. And as an extension of, of Taya's questions, uh, and many in my personal circle want to know what I thought. And, you know, they would ask me questions like, well, what's the big deal about that picture? It's all fuzzy and, you know, I don't get it. I mean, what difference is any of this stuff going to make to Earth and, well, us? <laughs> And I got to be honest, I get this kind of thing all the time. I mean, they, people ask, why should I care about distant galaxies, planets around other stars, and black holes billions of light years away? It's not like any of that is going to affect me here today on Earth. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. I get it. I understand the spirit of this question. And the honest answer is that none of this stuff that happens in astronomy is going to directly or practically affect your life. I mean, short of a asteroid or a comet on a collision course with Earth or a massive solar storm heading our way, is anything that happens above our heads going to matter in any real practical sense? In many cases, the distances are too great. Technology is not there yet. We've discovered things, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, even in those scenarios I just listed, it's not like there's anything we can do about it <laughs> other than basically just bend over and kiss our collective asses goodbye. It's not like we got the technology to do anything about it, right? So really, what good is this stuff is a question I'm sympathetic to. And what the follow-up is, why do we go through the trouble of doing things like finding exoplanets or imaging black holes? We've got a lot of things to pay attention to here on Earth. And I agree. I, I Like I said, I'm sympathetic to that. And I think about this a lot, and the one answer that keeps popping up in my head is that as human beings, knowing things has been incredibly beneficial to us as a species. And I think it's become ingrained in our nature now. I think there's a part of us that says, well, you know, now that we've overcome a lot of our evolutionary stresses on our survival, what else is there to know? It's not like we can just suddenly stop knowing things or wanting to learn about our environment. We've gotten the ball rolling through our evolutionary past, and now that we are at the apex on this planet, it's not like we can suddenly stop thinking about this stuff. So I think it's natural, if not compulsory, for us to want to learn more. Now, knowledge about the natural world has been the foundation of our evolutionary success on Earth, and it's possible that knowing that more knowledge will lead us to places we can't possibly see right now. But Knowledge is a tricky thing, and we need to be clear about what we mean by it. Plato thought that true knowledge came from the abstract, like mathematics. That was where reality really lived to him, and he felt that science could only provide 
low-resolution glimpses of that true knowledge and reality that mathematics lived in. Now, whether you agree with Plato or not, the Event Horizon Telescope observation of the black hole at the center of the very distant galaxy M87 is a great case in point of what he's talking about. Black holes existed in the abstract reality of mathematics way before we got this observation. And I'm not sure, but I think it was uh, Pierre Laplace in the 18th century, the mathematician, but it was probably somebody way before him, that first thought up the idea of a black hole and did the math. And then Einstein came along several hundred years later and gave the mathematical reality of black holes an even clearer definition. And here's what I'm, here's what I'm talking about. Here is what black holes have looked like for decades based on the mathematics alone. Crisp, clear mathematical models show detail of black holes in a way only mathematics can. And here is the best we can do right now with scientific observations. And yeah, it's fuzzy and a little bit boring. But this is a strong case for what Plato was talking about. Scientific observation is a low-resolution version of the mathematical reality that he found so important. And of course, that's not to say observations in science don't improve. Here's another example of that. Here's the best we could do with a structure in the Sidonia region of Mars in the 1970s. And here is that same feature taken with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter decades later. So, science gets better, technology improves, and observations get clearer. But they will always face fundamental limits, and they won't ever be as pristine as the mathematical versions. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the Planck time and Planck length are hard constraints that science can never overcome. These constraints are inherent fuzzinesses that our observations will always have to overcome. We can never observe better than the mathematical models because of those constraints. But does that mean that the effort and the time spent by the Event Horizon Telescope team was a waste? Hardly. We don't live in abstract mathematical realities, if they exist as Plato thought, that is. We live in the actual low-resolution world of scientific observations. So hundreds of astronomers and dozens of observatories came together with the Event Horizon Telescope with an image that links our fuzzy physical world with the pristine abstract world of mathematics. And the problem with mathematics, though, is that virtually everything is possible. I mean, all you gotta do is ask a string theorist or anyone enamored with the cosmic landscape. They'll tell you everything is possible, everything happened. And I'm not quite sure how Plato got around that infinite possibilities problem. But it certainly appears like we don't live in just any, or all universes for that matter, we live in this universe. And this Event Horizon Telescope image confirms which of the infinite models that can describe infinite universes describes our universe? And I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty damned important. Now, we may never achieve the resolution of the pristine realm of, of mathematics, but this image is an important bridge between the world of matter, which is you, me, the physical universe, and the world of mathematics, a bridge that science has been trying to build from its earliest days. So, no, this black hole image won't improve your childcare, pay your bills, get you more money, a better job, nor will it make your marriage better. But it will help us understand where you and all the rest of us fit in.
All right. Thank you, Taya, for your question. I hope this answers it. And please feel free to ask me any other questions you'd like, and I'll try to respond when I can. Anyway, that's it for this time, space fans. Thank you all for watching. And as always, keep looking up. Okay, well, I want to welcome my guest, Will Tyrion. He's uh, he's a, a, a star map maker, a publisher, a, an author. He's been around for a very long time, and I'm very excited to talk with him because in my early years as an amateur, as an amateur astronomer, I had many telescopes, and I've, you know, I've, I've started with a C8. I've still got my Edmund Astro scan sitting on the floor here, and I have all kinds of telescopes throughout the year. I had an LX200, but beside every single one of those telescopes was his star atlas that he had produced i guess it was in the 80s or the 90s or maybe all in 81 1981 <laughs> okay 1981 <laughs> i've always had in my telescope case his sky atlas 2000 and it mm -hmm. was a go-to reference for me to see the sky and to learn where the constellations were because in there was all kinds of great information as the a objects and galaxies and, and things that were very finely uh positioned in the in the chart so we could find them in our telescopes since then we've we've progressed into quite a few things but uh we're going to talk about some of those with our with with my guest today but will i want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me my pleasure okay and you are where are you right now anyway you're are you in the uk or are you in you're in europe where are you i live in the netherlands you live in the netherlands okay yes and that's where i am right now very <laughs> close to rotterdam Okay. Well, the, um, I was, uh, what you, I think one of your current books is, we're going to talk about this one right now. It's the, uh, it's the 2019 guide to the night sky. This is obviously a, a paper analog book. Now tell us a little bit about this book first, before I ask you some questions about it. Where, uh, what did, what is this book for and, uh, why did you publish it? And you're also well, publishing it with, 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 uh, Storm Dun Dunlop. Let me just. Yes. Well, I am not the publisher. HarperCollins uh, got the idea to make a yearbook. Storm Dunlop was willing to write it. And I do all the illustrations plus the layout. So that's my part of the job. But it's for uh, just for people who are interested to uh, know what is in the sky after sunset. When they see a bright star there and they want to know what it is, they can look it up. So it's for beginners, mainly. <laughs> And another book that I always had with me in my telescope case back in the in the eighties and the nineties, uh, and and this book reminds me of it was the um, the Observer's Handbook. Do you remember those from? I think it was I, I, it was a, was it the Royal Canadian Society that published that. Anyway, there was a, it was called the uh, Observer's Handbook, and there was one for every year, and it yes. was about it was about this size. Do you remember yes. those? Now, this reminds me a lot of that, uh, of that. There are several other books in England, because this is mainly English, published in England by HarperCollins. And you have the uh, Canadian edition. There are three editions right now of the book. But it's for uh, the, the, the British market. And there are different books, also the same size, the Phillips uh, guide to the night sky, a little different the title, can't remember it now. But there are several yearbooks in England. 
Now describe, you said that these, this book was for a beginner. Now describe how you imagine a beginner just getting started with the night sky. Maybe they've, they've come across your book on a bookshelf in a bookstore, or they've ordered it from, from a, an online seller. What do you imagine? How do you imagine a user, a person using this book? It's a guide. So, so you, that in, in it, there are, for example, there's a wonderfully written introduction in here uh, yeah. about the celestial sphere, what the ecliptic is. Uh, there's definitions of constellations. You talk about what an asterism is. That's an important difference between a constellation and uh, it's a group of stars. Um, there's a section on the planets in the introduction. So there's a lot of terminology in here that that's right. I think is important. You don't get this, for example, oh, that was my dog. <laughs> uh, you don't get this, for example, if you uh, have a go-to telescope from, Astron from Celestron, right? You're not going to get this information. You're going to have to already know what, yes. what right. these things are. So um, there, there's, a good, there's a good background of, of basic information in here uh, for a beginner. Um, but describe to us how you think a typical user might use this book. Yes, as I said, uh, somebody who's interested in the sky and he wants to know what he's looking at when he's looking up. He doesn't have a telescope or something like that. He just looks at the stars and wants to know where to look to find Venus or Mercury or Jupiter or whatever. And the way, I mean, just describe a little bit about, uh, well, why don't you describe for us how the book is organized? But there's an interesting introduction to show uh, what you can see in the sky, what constellations are, what the difference is between planets and stars, what meteors are, all those things that you need to know before you start uh, observing anything. Then there's a description of the constellations, the northern constellations, and we have now an Australian edition as well with the southern constellations. So, uh, and, and then you get the introduction to the month by month guide, and the month by month guide tells you uh, what position the, the moon is in, what the phases are, uh, how the sky differs from month to month, and where you can find the planets. They're all drawn in those uh, half circular maps. Right. And so let's say you're out in March this month. Yeah. Uh, you would. There's two ways you can use the book. There is a there is a map that shows you uh, if you're if you're standing outside looking north. And if you're standing outside looking south, right. and it gives you the view of the uh, of the sky in those areas, and the south is usually the most interesting, folks, because you look, that's where the ecliptic plane usually is. That's where you'll see planets going along. You'll see uh, the the moon, and, and of course that's the the path of the sun. So you'll yeah. see all of those things uh, by looking south, and um, it's a really good way to just very simply learn the night sky because I can't tell you enough how important it is. If you've just spent, I don't know, let's say $4,000 on a go-to telescope, right? And yeah. you've got, you could tell it, uh, show me the uh, Andromeda galaxy and it goes over and, and there's Andromeda galaxy sitting yeah. in your eyepiece and you're looking at it going, oh, that's a beautiful fuzzy patch. But you really aren't getting a sense of its position in the sky because the telescope's done all that for you. You don't really even need to know which way is north and south, mm -hmm. assuming someone set your telescope up for you because you're going to need at least that. But telescopes these days even do that. They will, 
you just put them up on a tripod, make sure they're level, turn it on and say, set yourself up. And it yeah, will yeah. tell, it will do that. It will go and it'll mm-hmm. look and it'll see where everything is. And then you're ready to go. So in my opinion, there's a bit of a disconnect between yourself and the night sky when you use a telescope like that, if you're a beginner. Now, if you're an advanced amateur, this is all great stuff because you can just set up and go. Uh, But if you're learning the night sky, it can be a bit of a hindrance. What do you think of that, Will? Personally, I prefer to look at the sky just using my eyes or binoculars, almost never use a telescope. Yeah, and I'm I'm the same way. And... I, I, you know, I'll be honest, I, you know, I love the night sky. I have several telescopes, but I do most of my observing just standing outside looking up. Um, that's really where I do most of my observing. The, the, the recent eclipse we had a few months ago, a few weeks ago, uh, that was what I did. I didn't even get out a pair of binoculars. I just sit there and got a chair and sat and looked at the eclipse as it went, as it went by. My so, wife and I visited the Texas Star Party uh, about 15 years ago. And she enjoyed it most to sit in the fields, just in a chair and looking up. Yeah. Because yeah. the sky was amazingly bright and she didn't need to see blots in a telescope. <laughs> I know. And things like meteor showers, all of that stuff. It's some of my favorite things because you okay, just yeah. don't need anything but your eyeballs to, uh, yes. to do this. Okay. Right. Well, I want to, I want to move our, let's move on a little bit to making maps. That's your specialty. That's what yeah. you that's what you uh, uh, describe yourself as a, as a star map maker. Uh, how did you get started in this, first of all? Let's start there. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I received a book about astronomy because that was my main interest in those days. And there was a little fold-out star map in the back, and that drew my attention. And I started looking at the sky, comparing it with the map, and saw, well, it's not very accurate. And I started drawing my own star charts as a child. And they all ended in the trash, but that's not important. But uh, the hobby got a little in the back until the end of the 70s, after I got married. I built first my own telescope. And then I said, well, now I'm going to do what I always wanted to do. I'm going to make a star atlas. And the first set of star maps I made was uh, published by the BAA, the BAA Star Charts. You never heard of it, probably. No, I haven't heard of that one. (laughs) I've heard of a lot, but not that one. (laughs) No. And then, after that was published, uh, I was encouraged to do a larger job. And Storm Dunlop was one of the people who uh, encouraged me to uh, have that one published in America. And that was Sky Atlas 2000, completely drawn on the drawing table with pen and ink and all the old fashioned stuff. So explain to me how you got the, uh, the astrometric information onto, a, onto the paper. How did, what's that process like? How do you take the known positions of stars and, and translate them to a chart? Well, the first thing you have to learn is how map projections work. So I did a lot of reading uh, and then I started setting up a grid, a very accurate grid, and used the catalog and reading, plotting, reading, plotting, a lot of work. <laughs> Sky Atlas 2000 took me two and a half years in my spare time because I had a full-time job then as a graphic designer. So it was completely done in my uh, three hours, in the morning, in the evening, in the weekends, 
and it took me two and a half hours. And then I, how, yeah. How many stars were in that atlas? Do you know? Well, of course you know. You first, put them there. The first, <laughs> the first edition had uh, 32,000 stars, not counting the overlap areas, but then you have many more, of course. 32,000. And the second edition had, no, I say, let's say it wrong, 42,000. Okay. And the second edition had almost, almost 80,000. And that so, was a computer plotted one. That was computer plotted. Oh, okay. yeah, the second edition was. All right. Well, the first edition then. So 32 to 40,000 times you looked up a star coordinate and then very. Uh, accurately placed it on your grid that you right. had for your map projection. Yeah, right. And you did that by hand? Yes. Wow, that's that's astonishing. And then if I wish I had, I sold my copy with my last telescope that I sold, and I really wish I still had it now. But the the it, if you look at the at the at the atlas itself, you see it's not just dots. There's there's all kinds of color and information in there to help right. reference you to the night sky. So it's really a work of art, folks. If you can get, do you, is it still in print or is it all? Is it? No, no. The, even the second edition by Sky Publishing Corporation has now been stopped. Okay. They no longer reprint it. They, they have left copies of the black and white versions, but the standard deluxe version is sold out already two years, and they don't plan to reprint it because they are uh, promoting their own star atlas, the, the Pocket Sky Atlas by uh, Roger Sinnott. I see. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, I just, I'm just kicking myself even more for having gotten rid of my copy. Uh, it was dog-eared, though. It was definitely yeah, well used. Yeah, yeah well. Yeah, and it was ripped and, and torn. I'd stepped on it quite a few times, so it, it got a lot of use. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the transition. Uh, how has becoming a star map maker changed from when you started to now we're in this digital world? Do you still make star maps now? And, and well, first let's start there. Do you make star? Do you still make them? Yes, every I mean, day. You published, <laughs> you published in this book, so you've got yeah. you still do still do this. But how has making the maps changed for you since that first edition of Skylist two thousand? A lot, because I was used to do everything on a drawing table until uh, the beginning of the nineties, and then I started hearing from the publisher, we don't want artwork on paper anymore, we want it digitally. And I didn't know anything about computers. So I started asking publishers, what do you advise me? And they all said, well, buy an Apple computer or a Mac and the program Adobe Illustrator. And from 1995, yes, I bought my first Mac. I bought Adobe Illustrator. And I started reading, doing it, reading, doing it until I knew the program, but still learning every day when I use it. Tell me about it. I, I know just enough of Adobe Illustrator to get myself lost and in a lot of trouble, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So, and so how then, what's the process like from getting to, now we have sky catalogs that are digital. They're put out by all kinds, you know, NASA has some from Hubble. There's, there's uh, lots of, uh, and now we've got Gaia up there uh, doing the most accurate measurements of, uh, of over, I think it's over a billion stars now uh, getting the, the astrometric information. What's the process now for getting that information into a star map? I do not use that information. Oh, you don't use the computerized. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I have several uh, computer programs about astronomy, uh, like the program Guide. Do you know that? Uh, can you spell it? G-U-I-D-E? Guide. No. Yeah, just as, as the title of that book you have there, Guide. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> That's the name of the program. Oh, no, I've never used that you one. You can create a star map on, on the screen, export it, open it in Adobe Illustrator, and change it any way you want, because that program guide makes beautiful vector images of all stars on, on the screen. So it's not just a screenshot. When you export that map, it's uh, a vector image. Right. In Illustrator, you can scale all the stars up and down. You can do anything you want, change colors, and then make it, turn it into a beautiful star map. It's much easier than those days on the drawing table. Well, it sounds like it's still manual, though, to some extent. I mean, you're reading in, yes, yes. Uh, you're, you're, you're making your star map with, with this one program, reading it into another, Illustrator. Yeah, and, and then you create a nice map. And because most computer programs do not create nice maps, in my opinion. Well, in your opinion, what is a nice map? What does make a nice map? In the first place, it has to look like the sky. It hasn't to doesn't have to be crowded with names and symbols and things like that. It has to be quiet to look at, just like the sky. But there's other information that you that you convey in a map at a glance. For example, yeah. this a bit a, the the size of the circles that are stars yes. correspond to their brightness, right? So right. there's a yeah. magnitude scale of how bright stars are. So real big stars are bright in a printed map, and and faint stars are. Uh, Tiny dots. All tiny dots. So um, how low down do you go? How dim do you go in magnitude for your star maps these days? Uh, it depends on the, on the, the publisher, what oh, he what wants, they ask, the writer. They... I work with what he wants. I do a lot of work for uh, Covert Schilling. Maybe you know the name. He writes in Sky and Telescope as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Dutch, Dutch uh, science writer. And he comes up with a, an idea for a constellation atlas and he says, Will, I need star maps down to magnitude 5.5 or to magnitude 6. And uh, this colors, that style, uh, go on, make a sample. And I do that and he says it's okay. And then I have to make 88 maps for each constellation. <laughs> it's like that. Most of the time the publisher decides what the, I have to do. I see. Okay, and it sounds like uh, it sounds like then that um, uh, you can tailor these requests to whatever the th the thing is now. And so when you made this book, uh, what to what magnitude did you decide to go down to with with the um, charts in this book? The general sky maps are yes. down to magnitude to four point five, but in places fainter stars are added to make a constellation complete, especially in the southern hemisphere. And many constellations that are only faint stars. And then I go down to five or five point five. And that sounds about like that's a that's pretty close to the limit of the naked eye because I imagine yeah. it's important in this book to uh, convey what the sky would look like under average uh, sky viewing conditions. And six magnitude is about as deep as you can get, I think. Yeah. Places, yeah. So not here in the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah. Why is that? Is it cloudy or, or just a lot of light pollution? Or both. The light pollution. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's everywhere here too. Air pollution as well. 
Yeah, I know it's the same here. It's yeah. it's terrible. Um, okay, well, I was looking. I want to like to move just a little bit to your website because I was in getting ready for talking with you. I uh, went to your website, wheel-tyrion.com, and you've got some really cool things here. If you click on maps, folks, and I'll I'll show you. I'll, I'll put a link to this in the description box. So okay, you can see that. But uh, you've got this cool thing that I think you also have hanging on your wall behind you uh, called splash maps. These yes. are enormous printed all sky maps. Um, tell us a little bit about those. Uh, there was a, a man who contacted me, was Mr. What's his name again? He, the owner of Splash Maps. Uh -huh. And he had a friend who was, who was interested in stars and he wanted to make a star map specially for that friend. So we got a deal. I designed the map, sent it to him. And when the man who prints those maps saw that, he got very enthusiastic about it and said, can we take that into our, uh, uh, how do you call that? Well, can we sell that? Put yeah. it on our... <laughs> right. You, you see my English is not my, my own language, so sometimes <laughs> I have to look for words. <laughs> oh, that's quite all right. So, yeah, commercial use for, for the... Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. You know, they have it on their website. Right, and so these are 72 by 72 centimeters. They are printed yeah. on a, uh, a cloth, I guess, that is suitable for uh, all kinds of conditions, something that uh, yes. uh, I think is really nice. So... Um, well, that's great. And it goes down to magnitude 6.0. I just wanted to point that out, folks, because I was going through his, his website and just really was struck by those. So check them out. I'll also put a link in the description box for you guys to check those out as well. So it's been amazing talking with you. But let me ask you a little bit about the future. What are you working on now? And do you have any future projects that you'd like to get involved in? Guess what I'm working on now? 2020. <laughs> this is 2019, three editions. Yeah. English edition, the North American edition, and new, the Southern edition. Ah, okay. Very, uh, South Africa. And I just finished the uh, three 2020 books. So they're ready to go to the publishers. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like you're staying really busy with, uh, with this, even though... Um, digital stuff when it comes to star maps you can get them all you can get software you can get apps on your phone uh but there's nothing like a book in your hand yes, with maps yes, I, that, I agree. that can uh, show you these things folks so i would highly recommend checking out these uh these books i'll have links to all this stuff in the description box so you can check them all out uh will terry i want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me i look forward to getting your maps uh, as i always have i'm going to get one of these splash maps because i just think they're the coolest things ever so thank you for okay. taking time out to talk with me uh, thank you for asking me you're welcome okay. all right have we'll a nice day uh, you too. All right. all right, everybody, that's it for this time around. I want to thank you all so much for listening. If you're listening to this on Anchor.fm, leave me a voice message. You guys have the ability to leave me a voicemail and talk to me about how you like this, what you want to see changed, or if you have a question, and I might, it even gives me the ability to play this in the podcast. So please give me feedback if you're on Anchor. If you're not, then send me an email at uh, hangouts, I know, hangouts at deepastronomy.com, and I will get that email and look it over and respond to your 
your questions either on the podcast or I'll write you back. So thanks again for listening, folks. And as always, keep looking up. Thank you.